Philippians chapter 1, if you'll open there with me in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God today. We're going to focus in on verses 7 through 11. But I'm going to start in verse 3 for us, just so that we have the flow and the context of the apostles' thought. We'll focus in on verse 7 through 11. We're starting here in verse 3 this morning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. It truly is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. It is, as the psalmist says, eternal, firmly fixed. Though the flower fades and the leaf withers, your word, Lord, is eternal. And so, Lord, as we spend time here today, we know that you are speaking to us. You're speaking to us through your word. You're speaking to us through your spirit. I pray that you would lead and guide us today, that you would guard our hearts and our minds, that you would keep us from foolishness, from folly, from error. Lord, as we close this chapter of 2023 and we move into the new year, Lord, that we would do so to bring you glory. Lord, that that would be the goal, that would be the aim, that would be what we are looking for and working for in 2024 and beyond. God, we thank you for your mercies, which are new every morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated this morning. You know, this time of year, I find myself reflecting on the past year, the past 12 months. I don't know if any of you find yourself doing that. When the kids go to bed and things kind of quiet down, I've find myself just meditating on what has happened over the last 12 years, not 12 years, 12 months, though the last 12 years have been eventful as well. The last 12 months of the year, evaluating, thinking through what went well, what didn't go so well, what worked, what didn't work. And then you begin looking forward to the new year. You know, what, what do we want to do? What do I want to do? What 
What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to see in, in, the, in my family, in my life? You maybe set some goals, some resolutions. I think resolutions is just a word we made up for things that we're not going to do. But anyway, we, we say we have these things that we, we're hoping for, we're looking for, things we want to change, things we want to accomplish. And that's a good thing. In fact, I believe that's a godly thing. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, it's a prayer to God. It says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We need to number our days. We need to to stop, to pause, to evaluate, to think. We have in the new year, in 2024, we have 366 days. 2024 is a leap year. We get one extra day. We ought to be thinking about what, what are we going to do with the days that God has given us. We don't know exactly how many days that we will have. The Bible says all of our days are numbered. We need to think in light of that. We need to think in, in light of the fact that our days are numbered. That we only have a, a certain amount of time, an allotted amount of time. And we all have the same amount of hours in the day. We all have 24. None of us have more time in the day than anybody else. Some of us will have more years to our life than others of us. And that's determined by God. God's the one that ordains the amount of time that each of us will have to live on this earth before he takes us to see him. But as believers, we're called to number our days. We're called to redeem the time because the days are evil. And certainly I think we could all agree that we are living in evil days. If we could all agree on anything this morning, we should be able to agree that we live in evil days. We, we don't live in Mayberry. We're not on Leave it to Beaver. In fact, I think if in Mayberry, they saw what was happening in our streets, they would think that the zombie apocalypse happened. It's pretty wild out there. We live in dark times. It's sobering. It should sober the people of God. When we look around our world and we look around our culture and we, we see the trajectory, we, we see where this is going. If God does not intervene and intervene in a profound and powerful way, things are not going in the good direction. Morally, psych- psychologically, economically, the, 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 the fabric of our culture, the fabric of our nation is eroding, has eroded. There's hardly anything, any kind of cohesion. There's, there's barely any social cohesion whatsoever anymore because there's, there's no common denominator. There's no common worldview. There's no common framework uh, no, no common philosophy by which everyone thinks and understands the world anymore. It used to be our, our nation was, was founded by Christians. Founded on the word of God for the glory of God. Established 
the, the, the 13 colonies established as a place for, for which Christ and from which Christ would be glorified. But we've fallen a long way from that. We've fallen a long way. No longer does the, the, the predominant great of the majority of the population share the worldview of the Bible. No longer do they share the, 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 the great moral truths of the Bible. So that now morality is up for grabs. What's good for you might not be good for me. What's e- what you think is evil might not be evil. So that even we can see the most heinous, the, the most grotesque, the most violent of evils in our day. We, we can see on the news the, the slaughter of innocent women and children like we saw just a few months ago taking place in Israel. Women raped, old women set on fire, babies dismembered alive. And people in our culture look at that and say, well, maybe it was justified. No, they're the good guys. They're they're the freedom fighters. How, How can it be? How can we live in a world? How in our culture can... Can, can there be no differentiating of what is good and what is evil? It's because the word of God has been removed. There, there is no longer a shared framework, a shared morality. It's all up for grabs. Everything is up for grabs in this postmodern world where the postmodern idea, the postmodern thought that dominates higher education and lower education and, and even now into the kindergarten classrooms is that not only can you not know the truth, there is no such thing as truth. It literally does not exist. That's what's being taught. That not only is there no truth, not only can you not know it, but it doesn't even exist. Of course, this is anti-Christ This is anti-Christ thinking. Why? Well, because who was it that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? It was Christ. Christ is the truth. Christ is the embodiment of truth, the manifestation of truth in the flesh. And so for someone to come and to say, well, there is no such thing as truth, and even if there was, we could never know it, that is anti-Christ. And so our education systems have been permeated, have been dominated, have been taken over by the Antichrist spirit, which is nothing new. That's the good news for us today. Here's here's the good news. This isn't anything new. What we are experiencing today is is, is hardly different than the first century Church than the, than the first century Christians and what they lived through in their day. Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and, and he said, I came to bear witness to the truth? And what is it that Pilate said? What is truth? 
Is there such a thing? What, what a joke. He laughed at the whole idea that there was even such a thing as truth. So though we have a new label for it, though we call it postmodern, Pilate was espousing it there before Christ. And guess what? It doesn't just start with Pilate. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to the serpent. Where he stood before Adam and Eve and he said, eat this fruit and you will be like God. Determining good and evil. You don't have to live under God's authority. You don't have to live under his rule and his reign as a part of his kingdom. No, you be your own king. You follow your own way. You decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is true and false for you because there is no such a thing. You just make it up as you go along. It's just the philosophy of the serpent. And so we need to be sober-minded in the days in which we live. We need to redeem the time because the days are evil. And so as we look to the new year, how do we want to live in 2024? How is it that God's people should live in a culture that's disintegrating around us, awash in the sea of moral relativism, where nobody can, when, when so many can't even see evil for what it is? How are God's people to live? And this here is, is where this passage comes into play that we read in Philippians. This prayer that the apostle prays for these dear saints, these dear believers, who, who lived in a very uh, much similar culture to the one we live in today. The Greco-Roman world awash in polytheism, that's many gods, Many religions, many philosophies, many ideas, many worldviews. There wasn't a lot of social cohesion in the Roman Empire. It was only the, the power of the sword that, that kept it all together. And so he writes to these believers who, who live in a day and age similar to the day and age that we find ourselves living in. And he prays this prayer for them. He says, I have this prayer for you. And as I began to reflect on and think on 2024, I have this same prayer. This, I've adopted this prayer for me and for our church. This is the, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Philippians, but this is also my prayer for you, for us as a church body. As believers who are called to be salt and light, in this dark world. Let's look at this prayer. It has seven components to it. Seven things he lists here that he's praying for. The first he says is, I pray that your love may abound more and more. The second he says that it would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. The third is that with that knowledge and discernment, we would be able to approve what is excellent, which is to also say not approve of what is evil. And that in doing so, number four, he says, that in, in approving of what is excellent, that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
Christ is returning. And how do we want to be found on that day? I want to be found pure and blameless. Number five, he says, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is producing good works in our lives. Evidenced, able to be seen. Jesus says you will know them by what? By their profession of faith? You you will know them by the words that they speak? No, you will know them by what? Their fruit. The fruit is the stuff you can see. The fruit is the stuff that comes out of your fingers, that comes out of your mouth, the way that you live your life. So your actions, your good works, that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that that, that righteousness, the, the right things, would be the things that we would do. That's number five. Number six, he says, all of this comes through Jesus Christ. There's no way to any of this apart from Christ. It's only through Christ and through faith in Christ and through hope in Christ and through the cross of Christ and through the work of Christ and through the power of the Spirit of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ and the intercession of Christ at the right hand of the Father for us. It's all through Christ. If we have any hope, it's only found in Christ. And then all of this is aiming in a direction. All of this is going somewhere. It's to the glory and the praise of God. To the glory and the praise of God. What I want you to see is that these seven things, they're they're like cascading steps that build upon one another, that lead us from loving God to living a life that glorifies him. And this should be our aim with our lives, that we would glorify God. That should be the aim of our life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism so famously put it, asking this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The first question In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the the most important thing that we should know, the chief end of man, the answer, of course, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why we were made. This is why we were created. To glorify God. To reflect his nature, his character, as his image bearers. To to show forth his nature, to show forth his character in the world. And and through our actions to represent God in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we build. That we would cultivate all of creation into a God-glorifying garden. You see, God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he gave them dominion over the whole earth. And he had carved out for them this this beautiful garden that he had prepared and cultivated. But then he told Adam and Eve, for the rest of creation, you go and have dominion and subdue it. You go and cultivate the rest of the world, the rest of creation, into a God-glorifying garden. They were to multiply and fill the earth 
and extend the boundaries of Eden so that it would fill the whole earth. That's what we were created to do. Of course, we tragically fail from that. But now Christ has come. We, we live A.D. We live after Christ. Christ, the, the second Adam, has come. And he has reconciled us back to God. He has borne our sins upon the tree, our sins, which are many. We're more sinful than we could ever know. But because of God's great love for us and love for humanity, Jesus came and died and took our sin upon him. Shedding his blood that we might be redeemed, that we might be reconciled, that we might be brought back into fellowship with the Father. And then Christ, before he ascends, he commissions his followers to go into all the world and make disciples of every creature. He, he restates the dominion mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, sending out his followers to disciple the nations, to teach them to obey all that he has commanded, to cultivate creation again into a God-glorifying garden. This is the work that we are to be doing. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray as we sang this morning, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth. On earth. See, the scope of the gospel is not to, to get you out of earth and into heaven. The work of the gospel is to get heaven down onto earth through us, his church, his body, following him. And even when you get to the very end, Revelation, the very last chapter of the book, you don't find God's people floating up into heaven. What you find is heaven coming down to earth and filling all of creation. And so we are to pray and we are to live for the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so here he gives us these seven steps that have at the end, the final destination, glorifying God. If I want to glorify God with my life, if I want the sum total of my life to bring him glory and praise, how do I get there? This is the roadmap. This is the way to do it. As we look at 2024, this is our plan. This is how we should live and be thinking. Number one, let's look at the first two quickly today. The other five, you'll just have to meditate on, chew on yourself. I want to dwell on the first two. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. How fitting that the apostle starts with love. It's all about love. Glorifying God first and foremost starts with love. The whole Christian faith is based on love. It's God's love for us. 
The whole Christian message, the gospel, is about love. For God so loved the world. In fact, you could argue that the whole, the totality of reality itself is based on love. Why do I say that? Well, 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. God is love. Love is the sum total of his nature and his character. And everything that is has come from God. So love is what the universe runs on. Love is the fuel that powers everything in our world and certainly in the Christian faith. Jesus praying to the Father in John 17 says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. You see, in the triune God, the Trinity, for all eternity, eternity past, their relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was one of overflowing love. When you read John 1.1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word with God means face to face. That for all eternity, before creation, Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. The Father, Son, and Spirit, face to face for all eternity, overflowing in love for one another. This is our God. God is love. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves on this passage has these thoughts. He says this, quote, God is revealed by Jesus Christ. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. Thus, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the Logos, the Word, the blueprint for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it may be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over. The Father so delighted in His Son that his love for him overflowed so that the son might be the firstborn among many sons. This God does not begrudge having someone else beside him. He enjoys it. He has always enjoyed showering his love on his son and in creating, he rejoices to shower it on children he loves through the son. So the next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember they are there because God loves. Because the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many. 
We were created to share in the love between the Father and the Son. And to be caught up into that divine drama. The Bible tells us that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so if my love will abound more and more, my love for God, it can only be because God first has loved me. You see, our love is not the initiatory love. Our love is not the love that takes the first step. Our love is, is not the primary love in the equation of the relationship between us and God. Our love is a reciprocal, recipro- whatever, reciprocal love. Our, our, love res- our love is a receiving love. Our love for God is a responding love to his love for us. Oh, the love of God. The depths of the love of God. That even while we were still sinners, Christ loved us, died for us, his enemies. We had all sinned against God. We have all gone our own way. We've all rebelled against God. But God, motivated by love, died for us. Shows his love in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Christ did not die for us because we were lovely or because there was anything in us. But he loved us because he is love. Because he is love. The Apostle Paul marvels at this love in the book of Romans, he says, oh, the depths of the love of God. The depths of the love of God. So if our love is going to abound more and more, it has to be rooted in, it has to be grounded in, it has to be fueled with God's love for us. This word abound, it means to have in excess, abundance, to overflow. How do we have an overflowing love for God? I would submit to you, we must meditate upon his love for us. If we're going to have any love for God, it's because he first loved us. If you find in your heart growing cold towards God and the things of God, simply look to Christ. Simply look to the Son of God who was born of the Virgin, lived that life without sin, came to die to redeem us back to God. The love of God that we would respond to his love and respond in faith. 
There are competing so-called loves in our lives. Things that compete for our love. Things that compete for our affection. Things that compete for our attention. That's something my dad taught me as a young man. I didn't understand it at the time. And, and he would tell me, you're showing that girl a whole lot of attention. I said, yeah. He said, she's going to think you love her. I said, no, she's not. What are you talking about? You're an idiot, dad. What do you know? Well, it turned out he knew just about everything. Uh, attention is how we show our love, is it not? What, what gets our attention has our affection. Isn't that true? What has our thoughts, what captures our thoughts is what has our affection. Do you know, I know this might be a shock to, to us that live in the world that we live in that's taught the things that we're taught, but did you know you can control your thoughts? You choose what you think. You choose what you meditate on. The Bible tells us what to think on. Think on these things. We can control our thoughts. We must discipline our thoughts. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that that's spiritual warfare. Taking charge of our thoughts and making them obey Christ. That's spiritual warfare. I need to think more on Christ in 2024. Amen. Why? So that I would love him more. Because if I think upon Christ, to, to think on him, to meditate on him, is to love him more. And guess what? You will never exhaust the well of Christ. You, you will never plumb the depths of Christ. In fact, Paul in Colossians says that in Christ Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That everything good worth knowing is to be found in him. To be found in Christ. Oh, the depths of the love of God. You, you will never get to the bottom of Jesus. Meditating on him, thinking on him, and doing so causes us to overflow in our love for him. This is the first step if we are going to glorify God that we would respond to his love for us in our, in, in our loving him. And of course, Jesus taught that was the greatest commandment, did he not? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the things that you do. So that our love would grow. That is my prayer for us this year. That when, when we get to this time next year, when the calendar crosses December 31, 2024, that we can look back and say, my love for Christ has grown. That would be a good year. That would be a successful year. That would be a year that we could say, we made progress this year. 
whatever may come. We don't know what will come in, the, in the, this calendar year, but we know the one who does know. But whatever may come, may at the end we say, but I love him more and more. He is more dear to me today than ever before. That your love would grow and overflow and abound more and more. And then the second is, it cascades into that, that overflowing, it flows into knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. When it speaks of knowledge, I believe he's speaking of two things here. The first is his word, that we would have an intellectual knowledge of him. That we would be in his word, that we would know his word. That we would have our minds saturated with the truth about God and the truth about his world as revealed to us in his word. We must find ourselves securely anchored to the truth of God's word so that we will not find ourselves swept away with the vain ideologies and philosophy of our world. All of us know, dear friends, family members, co-workers who at once seemed to love Christ who have now been swept away by the spirit of this age. How can I guard against that in my own life? By taking heed according to his word. By having my soul securely anchored to the truth of God's word. You see, when I, when I detach from God's word, I become untethered. I'm able to be pushed around left and right, caught up in every different wind of doctrine, as the Apostle Paul puts it. So I need to saturate my mind with the word of God. And this knowledge, it produces discernment. Discernment is the ability to, to distinguish between two things. Is this good or is this evil? Is this true or is this false? Is this right or is this wrong? How can I do that? I have to have knowledge of the word of God. What propels me to get into God's word is my love for God. What, what causes me to have love for God is God's love for me. And so it, it presses down into this, which then I approve of what is excellent. I say yes to the good. I reject the evil. And on and on it goes until I live a life that is glorifying God. But there is a secondary kind of knowledge that I think the Apostle Paul here has in mind where he says that we would love him more and more with knowledge. And that is not just knowing about Christ as we study his word, that intellectual knowledge, but I would simply say it is knowing Christ. Not just about him, but knowing him personally. Not just intellectual knowledge, but experiential knowledge of Christ. This is where when I walk with the Lord... I see how he has proven himself 
time and again on his word. And I see how God has kept his word, how God has been faithful, how God has loved me, how God has been merciful to me, how God has filled my life with joy and with peace, and how God has blessed me, and, and how God has just done all of these things in my life. It's an experiential knowledge of Christ, where I know him not just through my intellect, not just through my doctrine, which is important, but I know him as I walk along the course of life. And he walks alongside, giving me life day by day, filling my heart with joy day by day, giving me peace in the midst of life's storms. You know, that's when it matters. Hello? That's when we want the peace of God. It's, it's no big deal to have the peace of God when everything's going great. That's not remarkable, is it? No, it's in the storms of life where the peace of God is so precious. Oh, his peace, his love, his joy, his goodness, his faithfulness. Oh, has God been faithful to you? Oh, has God been faithful to you? That's the experiential knowledge of walking with the Lord. How he has proven himself faithful to his people time and again. That you would know him in this way. Do you know this joy? This joy of God fulfilling his word, keeping his promises. I think this is the kind of knowledge that the Apostle Paul has in mind. And I think that because if you look at the very next chapter, or chapter three, rather, in Philippians, he, he sets up knowing Christ as the ultimate goal for his life the ultimate end, the ultimate aim. He, Paul lists his resume. He says, I did all this stuff. I came from this family. I, accumu I accumulated all of these accolades. In verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What Paul says is you can stack up everything that you could ever hope to have and achieve in this life on one side of the scale your career, your, your material possessions, even your relationships, even the family you come from, even your health, even everything that you could think of that you would think would make for a good life, you put it on this side of the scale and you put Christ on this side and it's no comparison. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
He says, I've, I've forsaken it all. I've, I've suffered the loss of everything. And he says, because I've gained Christ, I haven't lost anything. I've gained much more than I have lost because I gained him. Because I gained him. He says, I counted it all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. How many of you are glad for the righteousness that we have in Christ? Not based on our own good works, but which comes from him. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10. Oh, that this would be our prayer, that this would be our aim. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That we would know Christ. That we would make this our aim in 2024. What could be a higher goal? I submit to you, losing 20 pounds does not compare. Or 200, whatever boat you're in today. Whatever, whatever goal, whatever aim, whatever resolution you have on the top of that list, let me submit to you, knowing Christ is far greater, is far better, will give life to, will enrich everything else on that list, will make it come alive in a way that you could never even imagine because Jesus even says, knowing him is eternal life. You want to experience eternal life? You will only find it in one place. That is in knowing Christ. Practically, in conclusion today, how can we grow in our knowledge of Christ? How can we grow in our knowing of him? Well, he has given us means by which to do it. This is what the reformers called the ordinary means of grace. That we would utilize well and utilize these means in faith. The ordinary means of grace. What are those? Those are gathering for worship with God's people. Those are spending time in prayer with the Lord. Those are spending time in his word and hearing his word preached. Those are participating in the sacraments of baptism and communion and sharing in the fellowship of the saints. These are the ordinary means of grace. Not a whole lot of glamour, not a whole lot of glitz. You're not going to pack out, you're not going to have lines around the block selling the ordinary means of grace like a new iPhone or something. But in these is the life of God. God has blessed these so that we would experience God in these things. 
Now, can you participate in these things and get nothing out of them? Yes, you can. If you don't participate in faith. If you just go through the motions, there's not going to be a whole lot there. You can come to worship week in and week out and not experience God if you're not coming in faith. If you're not coming looking to him. If you're not coming wanting to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. We can just go through the motions and miss what God has for us. And what a waste. What a waste to be here. Gathered with the people of God in the presence of God. And not experience the God who is here. What a waste. What a shame. What a heartbreak. The ordinary means of grace, worship, prayer, word, sacrament, fellowship. But if we would take them seriously and practice them in faith, not out of duty or obligation, but simply out of our overflowing love for Christ, that we would know him, that we come and we gather for worship because I want to know Christ, because I want to hear his word. Because I want to experience his presence that he promises will be here when God's people gather in his name. When we sing the songs, they're, 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 it's not just Christian karaoke. It's, it's to give language to hopefully the state of our heart, the state of our soul. To, to prime the pump, if you will, to help get you going, if you will, to stir up your love, your affection for him. But guess what? You, you, can, you can sing the songs and not have that happen if you just kind of, okay, this is amazing grace. What's he wearing over there? Okay. This is unfailing love that I put on deodorant this morning. That he will take my place. I mean, we're singing about the most incredible truths that have ever been spoken. And we just approach it so casually, so quesera, sera. Yes, they're the ordinary means of grace, but there's something extraordinarily extraordinary that can happen here if you will reach out in faith to touch the hem of his garment. There were crowds pressing in on Jesus all over the place, but there was one person that walked away healed that day. It was the one that pressed in in faith. I'm going to take hold of Christ today. Listen, if you will approach 2024 that way, if you will approach worship that way, if you will approach opening your word that way, not just I'm going to read some words on the page so I could check the checkbox, no, but man, I'm going to open God's word and he is going to speak to me. My creator, the one who upholds the world by the word of his power, that very word made flesh, died for me, and now I have in my hand and he's going to speak to me today. Oh, if you will approach the word in faith, if you will approach worship in faith, if you will approach prayer in faith, 
and fellowship with the saints in faith. If you will approach taking the Lord's table in faith, you will have a 2024 like you. You honestly can't believe. Or you can be sitting where you are in a year, another year gone by. Another year gone by that I don't know Christ more, that I don't love Christ more, hear me, is a year wasted. It's a year wasted. This is why we were made. This is why we were created. And this gives life to everything else in our lives. This transforms our relationships. It transforms our marriages. It transforms our parenting. It transforms our work and our occupation when we live it out of the overflow and the abundance of our love for Christ. But when we're running on fumes, when we're running on empty, and I've been there, and I don't like it, and nobody else likes it either when I'm running on fumes. It's not good for anybody. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can, we can touch God this year. We can do it. God can do something here in this place that can touch this neighborhood, that can touch this community, that can touch your family. But we must draw near to him in faith. The Bible says when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And hear me in this, that changes everything. That changes everything. When God is in the midst, everything changes. So my prayer for us is the same prayer that the apostle had, that we would grow, that we would abound, that we would overflow in our love for Christ, that we would cascade into all of these things, and at the end, we would say that we have glorified God. Amen. We can do it together as we seriously approach these very normal, very plain things, simple things, the ordinary means of grace. When we gather, Christ is here. His presence is here. When we come to the table, he is with us. Let us take and eat. Let us take and drink. Let us do it in faith, looking to Christ. That we would pray that our love for him would grow.